Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Signing up and playing is so easy. Simply sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you can get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matter more than ever. Place your money line, prop, and parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets. If you don't win your first bet, that's right, up to $1,500. Again, sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. BetMGM and Game Sense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus in President Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. That's 1-800-GAMBLER. Thank you for traveling with Amex Platinum. To your right, you'll see Oceanside Relaxation at a fine hotel and resort property. When booked through Amex Travel, you can enjoy complimentary breakfast for 2 and 4 p.m. late checkout. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. <clears throat> AT&T connects an ode to podcasts. Connect the alarm. Change the podcast you stream. Connect the snooze. 10 more minutes to dream. Connect the shower. Lather up with the news. Sports talk. Comedians or movie reviews. Connect with that three-hour philosophy show. Change the drive into work in traffic so slow. Connect the dishes to voices that glow. Thank you to the geniuses of spoken audio. Connect the stories. Change your perspective. Connecting changes everything. AT&T. Hey, what up? Welcome in. I'm Doug Gottlieb. This is All Ball. Um, All Ball, if this is your first time downloading it and listening to this pod, we do some current state of college basketball stuff. I'll give you some analysis. I'll give you some thoughts and I'll rant and I'll break. But what I love, and I'll just be honest, like I, I, I love conversations with basketball people. I feel like, I feel like they're family. I feel like they're, they speak my language, but I also love people's stories. Everyone has a story. And I was, I was driving, this is actually a true story. I was driving to Bowling Green, Kentucky, doing a game for stadium sports and I had done one in uh, Murfreesboro, uh, Tennessee, like that night. And then I had one in Bowling Green, West Kentucky, the next night. Right, these are the, gla- this is the glamorous life of, of Doug Gottlieb uh, a couple years ago, probably. This is pre-pandemic, I think, four years ago. And the rental car, I have a, I have a like, my rental car hack is this. I will go from, because uh, I have uh, Emerald Isle. I'll go rental car to rental car to rental car with the one with the least possible marks. Right? Who doesn't love a car with new car smell? You know, one, I can't drive something that somebody smoked in. And two, if I can get one with a couple hundred miles or with that new car smell. And here's the other trick is often new cars, they get free satellite radio. Now, this was before my cheap ass ponied up. So I got the app, whatever. And the satellite radio, I hadn't listened to Stern in years. And I was driving, and I was, and it was a Megan Trainer. Megan Trainer was on, uh, w- was telling her story, 
And it was about, she went in to meet uh, L.A. Reid. She was a singer-songwriter. She played the ukulele for her songs, and she had to learn the entire song. Um, but it wasn't, it's all about that bass. It was, I'm going to, uh, like, I'm going to lose you. You know that song? Really cool bluesy tune. Anyway, it was her life story. And I thought, man, think about so many of my friends and their stories and the quirky things that led them to where they are and the lessons they learned along the way and how great that would be to share. And I mean, this is like an audio book. Well, I think we nailed it with this one. Okay. I really do. And I'm going to give most of the credit to Shaka Smart. Shaka is a really interesting human being. He's also a fantastic basketball coach and Marquette, really, really good. So I want you to picture this in your mind. Like, what do you do the morning after maybe your biggest win of the season? They just beat UConn in front of 16,000 people. I played great. He's the toast of the town. We had a setup interview and um, parts one and two are an hour 45 total. Okay. We're going to, we're going to do part three and four, but we actually haven't gotten to it yet. I'm letting you weigh inside the belt right here. Okay. So part one, who is Shaka Smart? You probably know parts of the story. You know, he's maybe, you know, he's from the state of Wisconsin, but wait to hear what he does, what he's always done after he loses a game. How did he become a college coach? Wait, before college coach, why did he go to Kenyon College in Ohio if he's from Wisconsin? And you need to keep in mind that Wisconsin, at the time in which he was coming out in high school, that was the premier. They had, you know, Bo Ryan and all the right. You, uh, this is, you know, right as in the era in which he left and went to UW Milwaukee. But Division Three basketball in Wisconsin is outstanding. Why would you go to Ohio? And then how'd you get into coaching? And then what, what allowed you to climb the ladder so quickly? All right, part one, who is Shaka? What's he, what, what, what does he do after losses? What was it like in high school? Why go to Kenyon College? Why get into coaching? It, it's all in here. And in those personal stories where you drive from point A to point B, and so many of you have texted me, this is great. It's a must listen for coaches. Heck, I think it's a must listen for people because it's about finding your passion and deciding that you want to do it and understanding how to climb the ladder. Also, his personal life is in here as well. Here's part one, my talk with Shaka Smart, head coach of Marquette. I'm sure you're going to enjoy it. Okay, so I want to kind of, I, I, I like to do chronological order. I think the brain works best that way, right? But before we do, um, you guys, at the time of this recording, you guys just beat UConn. And there's a lot to it, but for you, considering all you've accomplished in your career, right? At a young age, taking a team to the Final Four, obviously the, the various stops along the way. But when the buzzer is at zero and your team, your style beats UConn, is there any sort of different feeling now in winning the, these games at this stop as opposed to previous stops? Uh, that's a great question. I, th I think the great thing about Marquette, because there's been uh, so much success here in the past, like, um, you know, I'm talking about like the 70s, 
Um, and then the Dwayne Wade era, and then the great things that Tom Crean and, and uh, Buzz Williams did here. There's a, there's a real, real hunger uh, to win games like that. Um, but I think there's also an understanding that we still have some respect to go take. Uh, we're, we're not, we're not thought of um, in, in the same way that a UConn is and, and we don't deserve to be yet. They've won um, a lot more championships and, and games in, in recent memory. But um, I think the great thing about here is man, when you win, it just, it, it makes people so happy. And uh, most importantly, the guys on the team. So that's the best, best feeling. I, I guess maybe that maybe the, what I was wondering is, is there ever a crisis in confidence when you're coaching, you know, um, because that's the big thing with, with players, as you know, as a former player, right? It's the, it's the guys go through up and downs in confidence and you got to coach it. You got to understand it. Everybody's, everybody's different, you know, and college basketball has changed and evolved during your time playing it and coaching it. And I just wonder if there was ever, you know, that crisis in confidence. And last night and some of these gigantic wins you've had at Marquette, I mean, you flipped this thing kind of in a heartbeat. If there's kind of a reinvigoration of, you know, I do know what the hell I'm doing. This stuff does in fact work. It's a great point. And it's something that uh, I used to work with uh, a coach, a veteran coach named Larry Shiat, who I'm sure you crossed paths with at some point. And he would say all the time, you know, coaching confident, co- uh, the confidence of a coach is literally day to day. And that was, <laughs> that was kind of Shy's perspective. But what he meant was, your confidence is based on the team that you have. I mean, you you can feel like you know the game. You can feel like you, you know, you work your butt off or whatever it may be. But the guys that you have out there on the team, if they don't exhibit the qualities culturally, defensively, offensively that you want to be about, then you're not going to be very confident. And so, yeah, absolutely. You know, for me, this is one of my two most uh, favorite teams that I've coached in 14 years. Uh, my other one was 2011, 12, the year after we went to the final four at VCU. And what those, these two teams have in common is the guys really, really, really love each other. Like truly. And yeah. there's also a level of humility, probably for different reasons um, about, Hey, we better do X, Y, and Z to win. And um, I'll tell you when you don't have confidence as a coach is when you know your guys don't have that humility and you're struggling to put that into them and you're going to go into a game where they don't necessarily have a full respect for what it's going to take. What were you like as a high school player? Ah, passer, man. You and I, you and I would have got along great um, because I love to pass uh, my Probably my favorite game as a high school player was a game where I had 20 assists. And I think I might have shot like three times. Um, so I, I, I love to pass the ball. I love to uh, to guard, pick up full court. That's where I got the pressing stuff from, my high school coach. Who, who, who's your, who your high school coach? guy named Kevin Bavery. You're still coaching in the state of Wisconsin. Uh, he's at a different high school now. He's at a school called Middleton High School just outside of Madison, Wisconsin. Um, and he's the one, Doug, that got me into coaching. Uh, him and my college coach. I never really thought about coaching, but he uh, he would have me coach at his camps. He would have me coach, you know, youth teams. 
And uh, it, it really got me thinking along the lines of coaching. But I was a terrible loser. You probably were too. I know you didn't lose many games. But when I was in high school, if we lost, I didn't talk to anyone for 48 hours. And I look back on it like, eh, it's probably not a very mature approach. But I just, I didn't handle it very well. I, I got to be honest with you. I love it. I mean, I just, I, I, it's like one of those things where like social media has when people cry when they lose, made fun of them. And I'm like, dude, I love that. If you're so invested now, you can't, you know, now when you, I start, you know, coaching kids and coaching teams, like, hey, you don't have the right to feel bad if you didn't do the work to repair yourself, right? Like, hey, don't feel bad. If you missed shots and you didn't, you didn't work on your shooting enough, like, don't feel bad. It's no big deal. Now, if you worked on it, you did everything in your power and you still lost, but still didn't make shots, well, then you can kind of feel bad. So, okay, how good was your high school? We were pretty good. We, my, uh, my senior year, we were upset. Um, you know, we were we were on track to go to the, the state final four, which is in Madison, which is real, really close to where we we lived. And um, that was devastating. That's probably if I could have any game back in my career as a coach or a player, it would probably be that game or maybe the Butler game in the final four. OK, wait, 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 we'll get to the Butler game in a second. OK, so your high school was what? Oregon High School, just outside. Okay, of Madison. So how, how far from Madison is it? 15 minutes. Okay. And who did you play? We played at a school called Fort Atkinson. And uh, we had beat them twice in the regular season. They were in our conference. It's one of those deals, you know, where you beat a team a couple times, then you play them a third time in the playoffs. And uh, they just, they outplayed us. We did not play very well. We were a little tight, big crowd. Um, and where, was the where was the game played? Game was at University of Wisconsin Whitewater. So for okay. for that time in my life, and uh, you know for that area, it was a big game. There's probably four thousand people there, and uh, you know it's it's funny now coaching in these Big East games, or you know when I was at Texas in the Big Twelve, or, you know being an assistant in the ACC, the SEC. It's one of the cool things is just the perspective of, you know, you thought certain things were a big deal when you were younger. And now, you know, there were 16,000 people at the game last night and we're playing UConn on national TV. So I, I'll never lose an appreciation for that. You get done playing in, in high school and you play Kenyon was D3, but some of the best D3 basketball is in the state of Wisconsin. So why go to Ohio? What, what was it? I know Kenyon's a magnificent school. Was it the academics? Like what drew you there? No, I mean, I, I was... Unlike most Division three guys, I was like our guys and, and most Division one guys in that I went to, to Kenyon. I went to the college I went to for one reason, because of the coach. <laughs> I, you know, I, I was raised by a single mom. Um, she raised four of us. And, you know, we went through some challenging things during, during my childhood. So I, I really wanted to get away. There was no way I was going to go to school anywhere near where I grew up. I learned later in life that wherever you go, you know, there's no utopia. There's no perfect place. There's good people in every area. There's not so good people. Um, so I learned that, you know, when I was young, wanting to get away, you know, maybe uh, was was more about just needing to learn, learn about other places. But, yeah, I went to Kenyon because of a coach named Bill Brown. He recruited me. Uh, started my junior year, and um, I actually 
I was accepted to Harvard, Yale, and Brown. And I was kind of lightly recruited by that. I was, you know, I, I could have gone there and, and, and been part of the team. As you know, in Ivy League, there's no scholarships, uh, athletic scholarships. And um, I, I went and visited those schools, Doug, and I was completely intimidated, not about basketball, but by the wealth and prestige and uh, academic credentials of, of all the kids there. I was from such a kind of a, a sheltered background from the standpoint of exposure that uh, particularly Harvard, going and visiting Harvard, I was like overwhelmed. So I said, no, I'm going to go to this little Division three school with Coach Brown uh, and had a good experience. But then he left after my freshman year, which was one of the worst days of my life. Okay. So um, how much did you play as a freshman? I started about two-thirds of the games. And um, I we do something here with our freshmen. I've done it since VCU called Freshman Orientation. And it's a once-a-week meeting that I have with the freshmen. And we do it from the time they get here all the way through the end of the season. And the reason that I do it is because I think about how I was as a freshman and how much help I needed in the mental and emotional adjustment. It's amazing. Um, And I really feel like that adjustment is not complete until the season ends. Yeah. Take a little, a few days away. And then you walk back in the gym and you just have this clarity about you and the fog has cleared and you're like, Oh, okay, I can do this. I understand it now. Let's go. Um, But my freshman year, I played a lot, but looking back on it, man, I, my confidence level, my, understanding of what I didn't know, very, very low. Fox Sports Radio has the best sports talk lineup in the nation. Catch all of our shows at foxsportsradio.com. And within the iHeartRadio app, search FSR to listen live. All this stuff is is so relatable. I mean, like, look, I was different background, obviously, right? I'm raised in um, Orange, California. My, My parents were together, but I, too, wanted to get away. And I don't know if it was my dad, my dad was, was a little much. Right. Um, but also just the, the whole LA basketball scene. Like I, like UCLA offered me and my brother and my sister was a cheerleader there. We had season tickets there. Right. Like I love UCLA basketball, but I truthfully like wanted nothing to do with playing at UCLA just cause I just, it just didn't feel like the college vibe. But then when I was at Notre Dame, truth be told, I think, you know, look, I got in trouble, but the things that, you know, when you look back and you get kind of get clarity on what went wrong, I too was, I was intimidated by the wealth and the, the, the intelligence of everybody around me. Like I, I was sitting in this, they have a, they have one course taught by the president of the university, Monk, Monk Malloy was president of the time. And I got in the course and it was Sunday nights in the golden dome. Like literally there's a boardroom in there and I took a class in there. And there's 12 students because there's 12 counselors. They recommend one person. And it's the most diverse group and interesting group of people. But like when you hear, and the first class was just everybody kind of telling their story of how and why they got there. <laughs> just go like, what am I doing here? I do not belong here. And then you factor in, I had a coach who, God rest his soul, John McLeod, is a magnificent man, right? Like he never looked like there was never a wrinkle in his clothing. He was never unshaven. His hair was perfect. Every practice was, was like a symphony in terms of like 
You had the practice plan and that was when we were doing it. And everything was done for a reason. But he didn't do, we had one freshman meeting and it was a weird one. He called us in and he drew a, he said, uh, he, first he drew a, uh, like a, uh, a classroom and, you know, he circled the first two rows and, you know, this is where we're going to sit. And then he said, Notre Dame, we're going to reel in the big fish, but there just wasn't an abil- a connectivity, mm. you know, and what you're doing for your, for your freshman, you're exactly right. Because every kid thinks he's got the answers and they all think they're going to the NBA. They think they're going to come in and be one and done and star. And if not, I'll just go find the next place. But he didn't, he didn't do it. Whereas coach Sutton, what he would do is you had, if you were in Stillwater, you had to come into the office and see a coach every day and then sign in. Yep. If you didn't, there was held up. It didn't matter. Like it could be any time during the year. If you were in Stillwater, that was the rule. You come in, just say hi. Make eye contact with a coach. So it wasn't as developmental in terms of relationships as what you're building, but it's still the same idea. And I, I think it's incredibly important. Regardless, you mentioned hard times. Okay? What's the, when you think back, what, what, what was the most challenging thing you went through growing up with, with your mom and your, your siblings? Well, we went through some, some different challenges financially. Um, when I was, I think it was eight or nine, we moved about half a dozen times in, in, in the span of several months. Um, so there were some challenges there. My mom was always kind of struggling to, to make ends meet. Uh, I'll never forget as a young kid, um, my mom <laughs> would, would come home and she would you know make sure we were good with like something to eat. And then she would go leave again to go teach Lamaze classes to, you know, pregnant couples. And I remember like just begging her not to leave because I I didn't, you know, I was a mama's boy for sure. And I yeah. just wanted to be around her. And I look back on that and I, I just didn't have any understanding of probably how I was making her feel uh, when I was begging her to stay. But well, you're, you're, when you're young, you're not going to have the empathy and understanding of no, uh, of no. that. And then, you know, I, my my dad is black and my mom is white. Um, so one of the challenges for me was, you know, kind of surrounding identity. Um, sure. You know, dealt with some different different issues with race uh, growing up, sure. like a lot of kids do. I'll tell you what was one of the best experiences I've ever had in my life is when I was in eighth grade, I played on my school team, which was all white except for me. And then I played at the same time on kind of a, I guess what people would call now an AAU team or a club team that was all black at the same time. And, and literally we would practice like in the afternoons on Tuesdays with the school team and then that night I would have a practice with with my other team, the Spartans. And it was such an unbelievable cultural and basketball experience going back and forth from those two teams. How, uh, how about this? How about this? It's just amazing. So I was one of the first like holdbacks, right? And I, I held back for a reason. Like my son is on the same path growth wise. Like I was end of eighth grade. I was five feet tall. I was. 92 pounds or something. 
And my dad had already had like he was a he graduated high school at 17 and then grew late, you know. So he, he was thinking the exact same thing. Um, but the year I held back, back then, AAU basketball and everything was all age-based, not grade-based. And all the kids, Miles Simons my, was my best friend growing up, but he went to high school. All those kids went to high school. So I had to find a new team. So two days a week, I would go and my dad would take me to Sam Miner's house. Sam lived in Compton. And... I practiced with B-Ball. That was his team. And then we would play in a league at Westchester High School. I was the only white kid in the gym, in the league, whatever. And, like, I think my dad would, like, and he was, he was all about it, but he would maybe come to the games. But he basically, like, take me there, and Mr. Minor would make me do my homework. I'd have dinner with his family. And then we'd go and we'd have practice. And then my dad would come pick me up. And that, that, was, that was how he did it. And so it was unbelievably uh, eye opening for me on how, like, here's a, a, a family lives 30 minutes from where I grew up, but just a completely different way of eating, talking, thinking, and being. And it was it, like, I, I draw on it even today, right? Like I, I messaged coach minor a long time ago. He's like, don't call me coach. You know, like you're a grown man now. Anyway, this is it, it, amazing. Okay. So, so you get done your freshman year. How did you find out your coach was leaving? I'll never forget. I, I can kind of see it in my mind like, like it was yesterday. I, was, I, I had gone home to uh, take care of my mom. She had had a, a, a hip surgery, and she, uh, my, my coach, uh, Coach Brown, called me, and I picked up the phone, and, and I could just tell there was something he wanted to tell me because he wasn't his, his same kind of jovial self. And uh, I was like, what's up, coach? And he's, he explained to me that he had taken um, another job. He took a job at a school called California University of Pennsylvania. Sure. Um, which is the Division II program. And so he kind of went through this. He was kind of rambling on why he was leaving. As, as, as I learned later on in life, like it's a hard conversation. Um, and so, you know, at some point, he kind of paused and I said, coach, I'm really, really happy for you. This is this seems like a great thing for you. And I'll never forget. He used to call everyone Bud. He called all the players. He would call him Bud. He said, he said, yeah, Bud, but it's not good for you. And I, I remember like just hearing the he had an empathy for me. And that's one of the things when there's a coaching change is it's it's a little messy, you know, because um you want to do right by everyone, particularly your players. Uh, but then there's your family. There's, you know, different relationships that have changed and there's, there's a lot going on. So um, that was a tough, I remember Doug, I probably cried for about three days. Uh, I'm, I'm an emotional guy. So I was very, very upset and, um, you know, thought about transferring just to get away. Cause I had gone there just because of him but I had some really good relationships in place with teammates and professors and friends on campus. So I, I said, you know what, it's, it's, it's something I started. I should finish it. Um, but I, I certainly missed them for the rest of my career. Who was your coach after that? So my next coach was really, really young. I think he came in at like 26 years old, a guy by the name of Richard Whitmore. And um, it was just different. You know, he was coming from, I think an Ivy league program and, um, 
I think he had played in an Ivy League program, and it, it was different. I, I think when you – and, again, I learned this over the years just in different stops as an assistant coaches and, and a head coach. When you recruit someone and you develop a relationship with them before they get there and, and then, you know, early in their career, and then a new coach comes in, necessarily that kid sometimes seems like – a quote unquote lesser kid or lower character guy or not quite your guy. Um, right. In reality, it's just a different perspective and it's a different bias, but uh, I never really was able to have the same relationship. You know, coach Brown was African-American, um, you know, a father figure for me. I was one of those guys, probably like you, I revered coaches. I mean, correct. It, when I played, and I still feel this way. I mean, I, I and it's why it's so hard for me the way that um, the media, I guess, has changed as it relates to the the way that coaches are are talked about. Um, but I looked at the coach like he was ten feet tall, and right. if he said, "Okay, we're going to run fifty miles, and then we're going to run fifty miles back," I'd be like, "Okay, I'll try to do it." And it, you know, it took me a while to figure out when I got into coaching. Most players are not like that. <laughs> what, what, why, what, like, again, hypothesize for me. I, like, we don't have all the answers. I, I saw this clip. I'll send you it. It's, it was Bill Self. It was about a decade ago. But he said, it was like, it's a societal problem. And I agree with it. It's like, who do, what figure of authority do we speak with the proper amount of respect for? We don't with the president. We don't with Congress. You know, we we don't with you know commissioners um, of sports. Uh, you know, like anybody in charge, we seem to have a, an issue with authority. And I don't I don't blame kids because kids are a reflection of their parents. So their parents are our age, right? It's like my age. And don't get me wrong, like I, I I'll push back on authority, but like. As a player, the downfall of my career, my honestly, my shooting is part of it is I, I listened too much to the coach, right? Mm. Like I, I wanted to get the right shot every time. I feared sitting on the bench out of understanding and respect for the fact that the coach, you take, a, you take a bad shot, out you come, buddy, right? And that was kind of how I mentally was. But my dad was a coach and you, it was, there was no questioning. There was no, like, this is not, this is a dictatorship. Okay? There's no question there. But what just again hypothesize for me because you're in it. Why do you think that we are in that place, especially for somebody like yourself, right? Because you're not somebody who has you're not somebody who uh, excuse my language motherfucks kids, right? You're not somebody who has any sort of off the court issues that would cause them to say, "Hey, you're a phony." You're not. On the other hand, you've dealt with this. You've seen it. You've worked with guys. Billy, incredibly successful, but it does feel like there's a change. Media, players, parents, why do you think that is? I think the number one reason is money. Uh, I, I, I think that when you and I were young kids um, and, and even the generation before that, you know, coaches didn't make a lot of money and even even professional basketball players, you know, if you if you look back at what Oscar Robertson made or something like that, it's like a ridiculous. So with the with the money exponentially changing, 
Um, I think that's uh, complicated a lot of things. I'm one of the few people, and I'll probably get in trouble for saying this. I wish that coaches made less yeah. but had more security. And and I don't know if there's a way to do that. No, listen, I, I actually agree. You know, like, so when I interviewed for Oklahoma State and I interviewed for a couple other jobs, I told them, I said, listen, I, I don't need $2 million. You know, and everybody told me, like, that's a mistake because you got to be viewed at that level. You got to put a price tag. Otherwise, they can get rid of you. You know, coaches, a lot of coaches, and I don't know if you're this way, they put a big number, a big buyout. You know, not because they want it. It's about making money. It's about, like you said, security. So you can't just make it a big enough number so you can't buy me out if I have a bad year. If I have to, that way I can, if I have a kid who I don't, I can run the kid off, you know, if I have an injury or just have a bad year. Right. But I, I'm with you. Like, dude, a million dollars is plenty of money. I mean, again, uh, again, scale is all important. You know, extend it and put it for retirement so that you don't have to worry about it. And not worry about kind of the the day to day, but but you're right. the The money thing is, you remember those? You ever get the Sunday newspaper? Nobody gets the newspaper anymore. But remember the Parade magazine that would come in the Sunday yep. paper? Mm-hmm. So I I, uh, I I this is what I believe. Once a year, the Parade magazine has what people make. You know, like the post the post office worker makes seventy five thousand dollars. You start like kind of going through it, yeah, and it dramatically changes how you view people in those professions, right? The second you hear a librarian makes 125, like I am in the wrong business. You view the librarian completely differently. So I, I, I think you, I think you nailed it. Um, I think with the money, uh, there's, there's a skepticism that comes along with it. And the reality is like, if, if, if you're coaching, if you're coaching me and we're going to try to do something really, really hard, which is win a championship uh, or even you getting me to max out as a player, which is really hard. I mean, what percentage of guys really truly max out and reach their upper limit as a basketball player? And so if you're trying to do something hard, you don't have room for skepticism, doubt, um, you know, cloudy mind, you better be clear. And so I I just think now there's just so much with social media, I hate to sound like an old guy and all the things around, there's just so much that clouds minds and the coach is no longer revered as a figure. Um, And so that's okay. I mean, it is what it is now, but sometimes it can affect the ability to create a captive audience. I really believe, Doug, think about the best coaches in any sport and the most successful coaches in our sport. Coach K, uh, Dean Smith, John Wooden, uh, Bill Self. Billy Donovan. Billy Donovan. One thing they all have in common, and they're all so very different in their methods. They all, through different ways, were able to create a captive audience amongst their players, most importantly, but even the parents of their players and the key constituents that allow you to be successful. The athletic director, the president, whoever it may be. And, And there's always a question, well, the chicken and egg, what came first, the success or the captive audience? I don't know. But... That's something that when you look at a coach that's struggling, you look at a coach that's struggling and you say, 
man, he used to be a really good coach. But what happened? He's not a good coach anymore. You know what happened? His audience is not paying attention as much as it once did for a variety of reasons. And we could probably name two or three guys off the top of our head right now in college basketball that fall under that category. It's not that they forgot how to coach, but there's it's, this deal is complicated, man. There's a lot going on around it. I think it's an amazing point. I was, I was having a conversation with somebody today about NBA guys and their success or lack thereof sometimes in college basketball. And I said, and, and you know, one of the things, and you can relate to this, the reason I think that there are so many point guards uh, that are outstanding coaches. I mean, and like you named a couple of them, right? Like Billy, Patino, um, like, you're, I mean, you're like yourself, like go through all of them, Bill, Bill Self. And, and most, honestly, most were not as like Billy Donovan was probably, you know, one of the best players. He became a great player, but most of them were kind of like us, right? Where, um, you had to have that ability to connect people. You had to have that ability to lead people. You had to work a little harder than other people, probably because of your size, right? And maybe because of your athletic ability. And all of those things helped you in terms of how to lead a basketball program. I mean, again, think about it. Like John Wooden was a great player, but he was a you know, point guard and a leader uh, and kind of professorial. But Coach K, you know, like honestly – um, I think that's it's an interesting dynamic in the relationship of, and I know that that like big guys always like, hey, they, people think we don't see the court, like that's because you don't, you know. <laughs> but and so there's far fewer that are able that that are able to be that relatable, be that understandable, and have that alpha type of leadership. Um, that that's your point out. Now you finish at Kenyon, and then you went and worked for Coach Brown at. at at uh, California and Pennsylvania, right? Yeah, so he, I stayed in touch with him after he left. And at some point, I think it was my junior year, he said, um, when you get done playing, if you want to get into coaching, you can come be a GA, <clears throat> be a GA for me. And you know, I was a pretty good student. So I had uh, a lot of professors that wanted me to go into this really rigorous postgraduate study uh, I remember my advisor wanted me to apply to be a Rhodes Scholar, um, which is funny. You know, the basketball coach from Oxford came to our practice last week, and he told me that when you go there as a Rhodes Scholar, it doesn't matter that you've completed your eligibility in the United you States. Can you can play as long as you're a university student. Man, if I would have known that, I would have tried to go do that. I didn't know that at the time. But anyway, so my professors were really mad at me when I went to California, Pennsylvania, um, because they wanted me to go, you know, do these big things academically. Yeah. And it was a no brainer for me because and I don't know how this was for you. Um, when I when my senior year was coming to an end, uh, the season was coming to an end, I literally felt like death was approaching and there was this identity this strong strong it was all I had I mean I was a good student I had some friends a girlfriend but I didn't care about anything but basketball being a basketball player and so the thought of not being a player anymore 
really, really messed me up. And I remember I had this countdown, man. We got seven games left in 32 days. You know, my career is going to be over. And it was a real identity crisis for me. So going into coaching was like the next best thing. And I still say 24 years later that coaching is a distant second to playing the game. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, I, people people ask me that. Like, I tell people that all the time. Like, do you know I would give up everything I have outside of my children okay, to go and maybe one of them. No, I'm kidding. Uh, <laughs> outside of my children to go in like one more year of eligibility to just go to just to just go play. And, you know, more specifically to play with those guys. Th- yes. That was I I knew I could play beyond college. I thought I could play. In, and, you know, I just want to play one. I just want to wear one NBA jersey, have my name on the back of the jersey, just one freaking time. That was really all I ever dreamed of. Um, but I remember we lost in the Elite Eight to, to Billy in Syracuse. And I remember, like, it was exactly like it felt like we were at a funeral. And we we're sitting around the locker room, and I'm looking at these guys, and I'm just in tears. And I wasn't in tears that we lost because we didn't play well. And they were better than they were probably better than us. You know, we didn't have, I don't think we had a particularly good game plan, but we also didn't execute the game plan. And, you know, like everything that could have gone wrong went wrong. We thought we were going to play Duke. That's who we wanted to play because they had beaten us our sophomore year. And we were, they were young and we we're just, we had, we had the hammer coming for them, you know? And I, but I just remember looking at Joe Atkins, who was my two guard, Brian Montanati, Desmond Mason. You know, Fred Yonsen, Alex Weber, even Glenn Alexander, the one guy that's like kind of out of our circle now because he's done some stupid stuff. I just remember going like, man, I, it's, it actually kind of the first time I knew what like real love for another guy was. Like yes. I legitimately loved those guys and that time in my life. And uh, yeah, when it comes to an end, like I'm getting goosebumps talking about it because it is such a hard reality. And I also think that, like, again, I understand the transfer portal. I transferred. But, like, people don't get what you get out of the relationships when you're at a place for three years or more. Like, you just. Doug, what you just described in terms of the relationship and the, just the feeling in that locker room, every guy that goes and plays college basketball should, should experience that. And yes. obviously, not everyone's going to be able to play in the elite eight or or or, or, or have a record breaking career, but that isn't that like that's the best thing about sports. What you just described, like that's why we all play sports. And again, I I accept that members of the media are probably the biggest. We echo the wrong sentiments. You know, it's like I, I tell the story all the time that when I was in, I think it was seventh grade was when Hank Gathers died mm. and I had, I had met, I had watched them play pickup ball the summer before and I'd fallen in love with LMU style. And when, and I was watching the game when he died and it was a hard one for me because I'd had a friend when I was 12 drop dead right after a practice. And I had this like fear, like at the end of practice, like I could die because it happened to both of them. Um, and I went to the first round game at the Long Beach Arena. And it was the most incredible memorial to a human being you've ever seen. 44 is everywhere. But when Bo Kimball dribbled three times with his right hand, 
switched to his left hand and he made the day. He made it. It's like, it's one thing to do it to honor somebody, but to make a left-handed free throw to honor and points up to the sky and does 44. Like, I mean, everybody's in tears. And I just, to, right then I was like, that's what I want. Yeah. And, and I wrote that, my, my dad had me write down like goals before high school. And I, I basically like, that's all I really wanted. I wanted to be a part of that. And the reason I coach kids now is, and you know, why do you, why do you want your son to play in college? Like, I don't care if my son plays at a great college. I don't care if he, you know, I just want, I hope I dream of as many kids as possible getting that experience where they play for a man that they revere and have respect. They play for a school that changes their lives and gives them a, a sports and life family. And then you have the relationships of going through the, you know, I hate running. I do not, I don't mind. I can run for days in a basketball court. I hate running on a track and I'll never forget. Like we used to do 6am running and we did 6am running because my first time running at Oklahoma state, it was August afternoon and we had to run to the track Then we ran and we ran home and then dudes are falling out and it's like 105. So I went and saw a coach like, coach, this is a bad idea, man. He's like, well, the only other thing we can do with all your schedules is run at 6am. I was like, done. I'll get, let's do it. I hate it. But like, I remember to this day, the last time we ran in the preseason, we all had breakfast together and we all made a pact. We are never even driving by the track ever. We're never, never running on a track ever again. And like, again, those things, that's what it's really about, right? Beating Oklahoma and, and feeling like you could fly home, like to go and watch sports center. Like even the, even the losses, like those things, just the, the getting in a fight with your best friend because you've just been around him too much, right? Yes. Like those things are things that I dream of more kids getting that opportunity. And I wish that there were more people in our positions that could convince families that, look, I know it sucks right now. I get it. Okay. But it sucks. Every freshman in college, it sucks for like, there's no freshman. That's like, this is awesome. I'm not homesick. Right. No, every, it sucks for everybody. But I if you can just hard, get through that. The hard thing, Doug, is what you're describing. Uh, families, parents and kids. It's hard. It's, it's intangible. It's intangible. So it's hard to put a value on that, even though you and I know it's invaluable. Like you, it, it, it's 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 beyond whatever dollar amount. You can't put a price on that. It's better than that. Yeah. Right. Um. So why did you leave? Why did you leave? You went to Dayton from there, right? I went to Dayton. Yeah, I was when I was working at Cal PA. I was so happy. I I, I would have stayed there forever. Uh, but my the guy that I had gone to play for and that I went to work for, Coach Brown, he said, if you want to ever be in Division One, then you got to take an opportunity when it comes. And I I had worked at Dayton's camp. This is back in the old days when you worked camps. You know, I I just did, I just did one of these with Dusty May. And yep. Dusty was talking about all the camps you worked. And again, like of the things that are gone, nobody does that. Did you know, here's a quick aside. And again, when you tell me when we're pushed up against time, this stuff is so good. I, I don't know if you know this. I almost went to Marquette. I didn't know and, that. And I worked Mike Dean's camp after committing to Oklahoma State. Wow. Yes, because 
I like Dino that much and I like the guys that much. And, and yeah, I mean, and, um, who I, was here I, at that time? Mike Dean was the head coach. Yeah. What players? Oh, well, Brian Wardle. Yeah. Uh, he's awesome. Mike Bargain. Mike, Mike Bargain is <laughs> a great dude. Uh, Bart Miller. Um, uh, Aaron Hutchins was our best player. So yeah. his, his whole plan was like, Hey, Aaron's a two year appointment. Like, bro, we're going to, we're going to be Oompa Loompas. He's like, don't worry. You guys will kill it, whatever. And Dino is one of these guys that like, again, if you're bothered by it, his favorite word is cocksucker, right? You, Bart, Bart, you <laughs> cocksucker. Like he's like, but in terms of like the love that he turns on for you is amazing. Right. So guys that played for Mike Dean, love Mike Dean, even though he's a crazy person. When I visited there, uh, Chris C Crawford was there and Anthony, P Anthony Peeper. Yeah. So I, I, I go into the dorms and this is, this is a beaut. It was in the spring and I go and visit and I go to uh, Crawford and Peep, uh, Peeper. Crawford's known as Woody because he looked like Woody from Cheers. And so I go in, there's a couple of beer cans on their table. And uh, I was like, uh, hey, you really, you know, pick the place up for me, huh? And they're like, no, no, you don't understand. That's a pyramid. I was like, that's like five beer cans. He was like, by the time you leave, it's a pyramid. <laughs> so, so I was, uh, I, I love, like my visit was great. We went to a Brewers game and we had beers with the coaches and I'm not really a beer guy. I'm not really a drinker at all, but for the weekend I was. So I actually came back. So I committed to Oklahoma state, signed at Oklahoma state. And, um, when I talked to Mike Dean and told him, he's like, Oh, I'm pissed. You know, you should come play for me. Not that old fucker, Eddie Sutton. Like, but you want to work camp? I was like, Mike, I just told you I'm going to Oklahoma State. I know. Come work camp. So I went and work camp. And Did he try to recruit you at camp? No. No. Hmm. And I was kind of, I was dating Nikki Collin. At, uh, she was Nikki Taggart at the time. She's the coach at Baylor. And she was the point guard. <laughs> so I was dating her. And I had a great time at the camp. It was awesome. And I actually came back. Uh, Nikki and I were dating. So I, I did uh, Christmas that year in uh, Platteville, where she grew up. So I was around Marquette, and then we stayed a night at Marquette. Like, no, he was awesome. Um, but, yeah, the, the working the camp thing is it, it's another oh. part that's gone away. And that was all about relationships, right? I mean, that's, what happened. that's how Bill Self got to Kansas. He went and worked Larry Brown's camp. Th those are gone. So I, I, I had worked uh, Dayton's camp a couple times. And then, so I worked for Oliver Purnell. You remember him at, at Dayton. And he did a really smart thing. When he had a job opening, he would have everyone come work camp. So it was like 10 guys working the camp trying to get the job. And it made for a good camp because these guys are like working their ass off in camp. But then it also was a great kind of window into who these people were over the course of a five-day camp. And so I was fortunate to go there. And that was my first time being in a Division I setting. And it was like, I was like a kid in a candy store, man. Like University of Dayton, I'm, I'm sure you've been around at some, like is a similar to Marquette in terms of just a unbelievable history of winning and then just a tremendous uh, crowd support and fan support and interest Incredible. in basketball. Yeah, I, I, my, I tell people this all the time. I broadcast a lot of NCAA games. The greatest game I was ever a part of, got a chance to broadcast, was the 
first four game that Dayton played in against Boise State mm. because it was a it was a Dayton home game, but it, they weren't the home team. It was the most unreal atmosphere. Came down to a last second play, whatever that they won on, and then we followed them to, to Columbus. You know, for the next for the next two, and they made the Sweet Sixteen. That's right. It was. I mean, I've, I and I've done plenty of Dayton games, so I have complete respect for them and and the understanding of where they fit in Ohio uh, Division One basketball. But that game, and I know they they have had other greater successes, but it was it was r- ridiculous. So, how did he tell you that you were the guy? It was tough. I mean, I was working a camp, and I had no idea where I stood. And then he called. Uh, he, you know, he Oliver is very. It, you know, very business-like, particularly, yeah. you know, with 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 folks that uh, are not necessarily on his inner circle yet. Uh, so he just he called me a few days later and he offered me the job. And man, I I thought that I was I was uh, I had hit the jackpot. I uh, my my salary was twenty four thousand dollars at Dayton. So man, I was I went from living in a place at Cal PA that cost one hundred and fifty dollars a month to get in an apartment that cost $600 in a month. So I was, I was big time at that point. Uh, what was it? What was it like a date? What was- Unbelievable. Just a great learning experience. And for a young coach, it was, it was really good in that I was in charge of all the video stuff. So I was literally in this video room that was about eight by 10 feet. It was like a closet for about eight or 10 hours a day. And my job was to kind of break down opponents, break down our team, you know, typical video guy stuff. I also had the job at the time of recording every college basketball game that was on TV around the country. And that was a big job at that time because you had to set the satellites and set the VCRs and you had to do it multiple times a day on the weekends when games started early and went through the night. Um, You had to get all the West Coast games. But what it did is it just exposed me to a ton of basketball. And I can still tell you about like all these different teams that I watch. I remember watching all Jay Wright's Villanova teams because we played them my two years at Dayton um, in his early years at Villanova. And it just kind of got me interested in Jay Wright. So then even when I left Dayton, I continued to follow their team and how he played and how they evolved. And that's really helped me in coaching that foundation. How did you leave and go to Akron? How did that take place? Well, Oliver got the Clemson job. We were down in New Orleans uh, at the Final Four. And, I mean, you've been to many Final Fours. We were on Bourbon Street, and I was 26 years old, and we were in an outdoor bar, and somebody kind of tapped me on the shoulder, and they pointed up at the TV screen, and it was Sports Center, and there was a picture of Oliver Purnell with the Clemson logo. And that's how I found out that he had taken the Clemson job. Uh, like I said, he, Oliver's pretty close to the vest. So, he, he, you know, he hadn't told a lot of people and he took the job. So I went down there with him. I was down there for about five weeks, but I was not in a assistant coach position. I was like operations. And I really wanted to get on the court. And so Coach Brown, my college coach, called me and he said, if I can get you the job at Akron, would you take it? And I said, Absolutely. And so he got me an interview with Dan Hipsher, who was a head coach at Akron at the time, awesome guy. And it was the easiest interview I've ever done. He said, can you recruit? 
I said, yeah, I think so. I, 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 I can do a good, I'll work hard at it. Uh, can you work with the guards? Yeah, yeah, I can, I can work with the guards. I, I play guard. I feel like I know position pretty well. Can you do a scouting report? Oh, yeah, I did all the video stuff the last few years, uh, you know, when I was at Dayton and, and before. So I, I definitely can do that. Okay, you got the job. And uh, so I went to, to Akron, and Akron was definitely the most important coaching stop in my whole career because I met my wife there. And then this isn't why it was the most, was the most important, but this is an interesting aside. My very first day on the job, Keith Dambrot, who was an assistant coach who became ended up becoming the head coach later, he said, I want to introduce you to someone. I said, great. And we got in his car and we drove to this rec center gym. And we're standing in the gym at the rec center. It's the middle of the day, so there was no kids there. They were all in school. And a Hummer pulls up. And out of the Hummer walks LeBron James. And he walks into the rec center. And Keith throws me the ball. And he says, come on, we're going to work out LeBron. And so I was kind of in the right place at the right time. I helped Keith work out LeBron James for about two months in between May and July going into his first season in the NBA. That was a lot of fun. That's amazing. Here's an interesting aside. I got to ESPN. I, I had done games for a year and then went back and played in France. The guy who hired me at ESPN was a guy named Dan Steer. And so and I, would, I did local radio for a year in Oklahoma City. So I, I, I get back from France and I do it. I'm in a mini camp with the Timberwolves and I call Dan Steer from the hotel room and I said, Dan, um, I would love to do the NBA draft. I'm the most prepared guy you can get. He's like, well, come on, man. He's like, why would you say that? I go, well, um, I played against um, Darko twice when I was in Israel and he was obviously the number two pick. I played against Boris Diaw, Michael Petrus like two weeks ago. And then uh, my dad's an AU coach. You know, I know all the high school guys. And then my brother's an assistant at San Diego State. So we know, all the, and I, I work for you, so I know all the college guys. He's like, well, I can't use you, but maybe radio can. And so I, I actually flew to New York for the NBA finals just to meet the guy who's in charge of radio. He's like, sure, yeah, fine. Like, somebody called me about you. And anyway, I was on that draft. But what I remember about LeBron James and Obviously now it, it, it makes sense, but I remember Mello, Chris Bosch, who I had known because he'd come to our games at Oklahoma state, Joe Johnson. Some of those guys were all in that draft. I remember when LeBron walked in, I'd never met him before. He was a high school kid. And you know, how they say in basketball sometimes like, well, that guy's sneakers squeak different. Like he's just different than the rest of the people. In terms of presence, I've never seen anything like it. Yes. Like here's, he was like an 18 year old kid incredible from a single parent home in Akron, Ohio. And that dude had the type of press. It was like Jesus himself walked in and decided I'm going to talk about basketball day. Right. That's a, is that a fair, like when he walked in the gym and obviously he'd been in the NBA, but there's just a presence about it. Yeah. And, and part of it is his mind. He is really, really, really smart. And I don't think he gets enough credit for that because people look at him and they see his physical prowess, but he's one of the most intelligent people I I've ever been around in my life. Okay. How'd you meet your wife, by the way? You can't bury the lead. Blind date. Uh, a friend of mine 
uh, who's the chief of staff for the president in Akron, introduced me. She actually tried to introduce me to her stepdaughter first, uh, and we never met. So wait, wait, so wait, who, who's this? Who's who set up the blind date? What's her actual name? So this woman is a great close friend of mine. I text her every day, every morning. I text her. Her name is Candace Campbell Jackson. She's actually she works for the chancellor of Syracuse University. She's like the chief of staff. Um, really, really bright, uh, Howard educated woman. And sh- she was at Akron and she wanted to hook me up with somebody. And so she tried with her stepdaughter first. Uh, we never ended up meeting because her stepdaughter, I think, moved away. And so her second choice was uh, my current wife, Maya. And uh, I learned, you know, later on in life that the most important decision that you make in your life is who you choose to marry. Um, and, and that is just the far reaching effects and consequences of that decision um, are so critical. So, uh, you know, I was really, really lucky to get introduced to her. Where'd you go on the, on the blind date? We went to a place called Jillian's in Akron and we watched the Cavs game. And it was great because um, Maya got kind of an introduction right away in, in us being together of like just my passion for basketball and just how nutty I am about it. And that it's just kind of always on my mind. That's awesome. She's a keeper, right? If, 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 if on your first, on a blind date, she'll watch a basketball game with you. Well, I She's mean, a as, keeper. as you know, uh, coaches wives, I mean, it, it pretty much got to be a saint. Yes. Um, and so it, it, it helps so much when there's an understanding of the profession before you get engaged or before you get married, you know what you're getting into. And so she got that definitely on our first date and, and moving forward. When, when did Dan Dan get fired or did he leave and go somewhere else? He did. He did. It was, uh, you know, it was, we had a really talented team, but we had a kind of a, a group of, uh, of guys that were challenging to manage. Um, so yeah, I mean, we we as a staff were were let go for, you know, I, I'll never forget we lost in a conference tournament, um, and you know, kind of got the news from Coach Hip that that the AD had made the change, and so one of the things in this profession that's really odd and unique is that like when there's a coaching change, and you're on a staff, you don't really know what to do. Like you just you know, it's like, hey, what do I, you know, you make some calls, and, you know, so we're all sitting in the office and Keith Dambrot came in my office and he said, the AD, the AD's name was Mike Thomas. He wants to see you. And so I went up to Mike Thomas's office. And again, this is just hours after, you know, finding out that, um, you know, Coach Hip had gotten let go. And he said to me, the AD said, how are you doing Shaka? And I, I felt like saying, well, not very good, man. Like, yeah, like this is not a good day, but um, I was like, I'm okay. I'm, I'm, I'm fine. And, and then he said, well, listen, uh, we're going to have a press conference tomorrow and I'm going to name Keith the head coach and I would like for you to stay. And so it was kind of the shortest window probably in, in coaching of, of not having a job. Uh, 
I guess technically I always had a job, but um, it was it was a unique thing. And then Keith did an unbelievable job at Akron. I mean, he he didn't get as much credit for it nationally as he should have. But at one point, there was like a list of six schools that had won 22, 23 games in a season for umpteen years in a row. And it was like all the heavyweights and Akron. What allowed him to be successful? Unbelievable. You know, you talked about um, Coach Sutton, Sutton having the players come by the office. Keith was the best I've ever been around at spending time with the players and making sure that the staff did the same thing. And he used to have us do this thing. I hate it. I hated this. After every practice, the whole staff had to go into the locker room and just hang out for 10 to 15 minutes. And I'm one of those type of guys like, I want to go do the next thing. Like, I got recruiting calls yeah. to make. I got I got to work on a scouting report. You know, I, I, I. but it was ingenious. One of the best things in retrospect ever because Keith was really hard on those guys in practice. There was definitely some choice words spoken throughout the three and a half hours of practice. But that time spent in the locker room with those guys afterward, it really repaired relationships. And it basically got us back to like even in terms of like everything's okay. And now they can come back in tomorrow and we can do it all again. But if we hadn't spent that time, he hadn't made us do that. It would have it would have snowballed. It would snowballed. It would have sure. snowballed. Yeah, it would have snowballed. Um, how did you guys play style wise? How did you play? Well, I mean, we Keith did a great job because we we didn't have the greatest roster um, his first couple years, so we played kind of however you know however we needed to. Like my our first year, his first year as a head coach, we had a five five point guard. So you know, we pressure he pressured the ball and tried to be aggressive and, you know, we mixed in some pressing. Um, Keith is a great offensive coach. He actually meat and potatoes. And I know this is going to sound crazy because I work for Billy, um, but just the meat and potatoes of basketball, like X and O basketball, coaching the game of basketball, not psychology, not, yeah. not any of that. He's the best coach I've been around. Uh, wow. Really, really good. Why did you leave and go work for OP? My wife, uh, one of many times. Uh, now you're married. That you're married at that time. We're engaged uh, at the time. How'd you ask her? You can't can't get away without telling me how you asked her. Uh, I messed that up, man. We went on vacation, um, and we 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 were just you know we'd been together for about six months, and we were talking about the future, and uh, it was basically like, hey, you know, we could get married, and she's like, yeah, we could. And I'm like, okay. And uh, she said, okay, next year. And then that was how we got engaged. <laughs> so it wasn't really uh, any type of romantic proposal. Nah, it's the greatest kind of commitment. It's like when you're having a, you're having a recruiting call, I'm like, all right, I'm coming. Like, that's it. Yeah. You know? And then I, ma I made the most rookie novice mistake of all time. I'm sure you've heard of people doing this. We went to the jewelry store together to buy a ring. <laughs> <laughs> and the guy completely, the, the, I mean, his eyes just lit up when he saw us because he knew he was going to get us. So I basically, I spent my life savings. I didn't have much money at that time. 
Um, I spent every dime I had on that ring. So at, at least we're still together. But yeah, Maya, um, I could have stayed at Akron forever. I loved it there. I mean, I I love living there. Um, I love Keith, probably the, the closest guy that I've been. He's the closest I've been with any guy that I've worked with. Um, but Maya's like, what are you talking about? Like, it's an ACC job. And you if you want to become a head coach, like, and you have to make that move. And plus, you know, Oliver and you love him. And so it's not like you're going somewhere blind. Um, so she won out like she normally does. And uh, we went down to, to Clemson. I was there for two years and loved it down there. Okay, so now you know we still have to get to working for Oliver Purnell, how to get to Florida, how to get the VCU job, so much other great stuff. I, I make few promises for you, okay? but I can promise you that part two, as good or better than part one, and it'll you be it'll leave you yearning for part three and part four. Okay. Anyway, my 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 sincere thanks to Shaka. Uh, he was incredibly gracious with his time and with how open he has been in our really conversation. Um, yeah, this is one to to definitely send to your friends. It's a good one. Um, anyway, a reminder: the Doug Gottlieb Show is daily. Daily, 3 to 5 Eastern Time, 12 to 2 Pacific. We have the In the Bonus podcast, which is like an hour, almost like a radio show in itself podcast. You can download that. In the meantime, tweet this thing out. Don't be afraid to subscribe, rate, review, uh, tweet, retweet, put it on Facebook, send it to a friend because it's incredible stuff in terms of his path. And so many of you listen and you're either on your own path or you want to start your own path or you've had your own path. And you're fascinated by others, especially a guy as interesting as Shaka. All right, stay tuned for part two. I'm Doug Gottlieb. This is All Ball. Three six five. We don't do ordinary. We believe that every sport should be epic. Every home run, every hit, every inning, every play. From the moments that are legendary to the ones that fly under the radar. See for yourself when you sign up today and get one hundred and fifty dollars in bonus bets when you bet just five dollars. Whatever the sport, whatever the moment, it's never ordinary at Bet three six five. Twenty one plus only must be present in Ohio. If you or someone you know has a gambling problem and wants help, call one eight hundred Gambler. Terms and conditions apply. Thank you for traveling with Amex Platinum. To your right, you'll see Oceanside Relaxation at a fine hotel and resort property. When booked through Amex Travel, you can enjoy complimentary breakfast for 2 and 4 p.m. late checkout. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. Getting ready to take on spring? Make your first move with the reliable performance and power of steel battery tools. From hedge trimmers and mowers to string trimmers and more... Right now, you can save $50 on select battery tool sets. Real steel. Offer valid on select AK system sets through June 16, 2024. See participating retailer for details.